for the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, the court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through, the, through and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Please be seated. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you again three times in this little passage. We hear about the angel of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, about your leading and your guiding. And we know that this was not just some thing that was there back in Philip's day and in the early church day. But Lord, we know your Holy Spirit is real and powerful and working even now, as we've confessed already in our service. And so we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you help us as we attend to your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. My goal this morning is for all of us to be reminded that it is God who is actively at work in his world, in the spread of the gospel, and in the opening of the hearts of all the people whom he will save. It's the Holy Spirit's work. God works, and it's God's work. It's God's plan. It's God's masterpiece. We are allowed, called, challenged, welcomed to join God in his work. But it's his work. He does use us. The scripture says, how shall they hear without a preacher? It's his plan to use us, but he is the cause. It's God's work. And we can relax then and follow his lead. It's not our work, it's his work. So we hear this this morning, and I want us to understand God is at work. God uses his people. It's a good thing to be able to be used. One of my old pastors used to say, God uses a crooked stick to accomplish his work. Uh, We're not God, we're we're imperfect, but God 
chooses to use us. And so understand that and let's approach this passage. This is a great, this is a great passage for us to look at this morning. And so I hope we're, we can engage and, and, and get what the Lord has for us. One of my kids, when they were little, remember this day distinctively. I don't necessarily remember which child it was, but I remember the, I remember the expression in the child. And I think it's happened more than once. We were out doing yard work. This little child was uh, doing the work. Paula, who's better at discerning what's a weed, what's a plant on that bank than me, you know, so she, she has to do the thinking work. I was doing the grunt work of gathering all those things and putting it in the wheelbarrow. But that little kid of mine, I said, hey, can you help? Can you help me? I'm going to push this wheelbarrow. We're going to take this down there into the woods. We've got this path to dump that and all that. Will you help me? And they were so delighted to be able to help. So they got behind the wheelbarrow with their little body and put their hands on it. Then I got behind and picked up the handles, and boy, I knew exactly where to do it. I could keep it balanced. I think probably weighed twice as much as them. But I was doing that work, and they were helping me. And we got done, and we put it there, and I said, oh, thank you so much. We made several trips like that, and they were just eager to do the work that the family was doing. Now I ask, who did the work? And the answer trick question, we both did. They were pushing, they were working, they were exercising their body, they were doing. But I was doing the work, too. I knew where to put that. God directs, God does the work, but he lets us do it, and he delights in our delighting to to help him. Satisfaction, seeing in that little person that they were useful and helpful in this yard that we all enjoyed. We see this this morning in Philip's response to the leading of the Holy Spirit. We begin with noting that God does the heavy lifting in our own personal work in the place where he desires us to be. God is actively involved in where we are and what we're doing. Philip was exactly and had been exactly where God wanted him. God saved him at some point uh, in the early days of the church, had saved him and had used him, uh, had caused him to be one of the seven that were chosen then uh, when they chose those people along with Stephen and the others uh, to take care of the widows. As a precursor, we believe, to what then became the office of deacon, that God had appointed him to that. Stephen's martyrdom was something God used to put Philip in a different situation, in a different place. Stephen, one of the seven, was killed for what he had to say. Remember, the mob stopped up their ears. They wouldn't even let him finish. They yelled and they killed him. Cancel culture back then. And the Jews, uh, and the religious part of the Jews versus the Christian Jews, and they were all Jewish Christians. But they had left their faith, and they were going to be scattered. And they knew it wouldn't stop with Stephen. Stephen was just the high profile, and it was coming for the rest of them. That hatred, that not allowing a voice, that not allowing to listen was coming. And God used the martyrdom of Stephen as the blood was in the water and the sharks were circling 
talking about Saul breathing fire, breathing threats against the church. It just unleashed a frenzy. We can do this to, to Stephen. We can do this to the rest of these people who are making us uncomfortable with their words of the gospel. And it scattered them. And Philip was scattered along with every other believer. We read next that God took Philip and his scattering down to Samaria. The town of Samaria, it says. And we know it's a region. And we're not, not sure exactly which town, but we know it was in Samaria. And he did exactly in Samaria what he was saved to do in Jerusalem. And that is the job description of a Christian. Love God, enjoy him forever. Make disciples wherever you go. Uh, Live as a Christian. Our job description as Christians in our life and culture does not change depending on who's in office. You may wake up one day and there's a new president and a new senate, but there's not a new job description for you as a believer. It's always the same. You can find out your job description and learn more about it as you read the scriptures. So he went to Samaria and he did what he did in Jerusalem. He did what Christians do everywhere. He lived out his Christianity. It was in his walk and it was in his talk. Somebody said, uh, on the importance of your walk, they said, your, your walk talks and your talk talks. But your walk talks louder than your talk talks. And a lot of times that's absolutely true. And in Samaria, he did the signs and the wonders. And there was Simon the magician down there doing his. And these works that Philip did were more powerful and were more uh, awe-inspiring. And they weren't just entertainment And the people uh, heard the message that was there. And God enabled him to do the works so that the message could go forth. And people came to the Lord there. That's what God wanted him to do. That's like what you do in your world as a Christian. You live the faith. You speak the faith. You come to worship the Lord together because of your faith. You sing it. You participate in it. You encourage others in it. Because you're a Christian, that's what you do. And in Samaria, his calling was to do the miraculous signs. He wasn't bothered by race and cultural issues. The Samaritans had been at enmity. They were the half-breeds. In some ways, uh, you could make a case or you could think that maybe they were even more hated and despised than the out-and-out Gentiles because they distorted and twisted and there had been this long-running enmity. And if you read the history, uh, various kingdoms had pitted the two against each other. And so there was some animosity. Didn't bother Philip, filled by the Holy Spirit, because it didn't bother God. And God did a work there and saved people. Then the apostles came down, and Philip's work there was done. And now we get to our text. And again, we're saying and we're understanding that the Holy Spirit leads and guides his people. And he does the work, and he lets us do it with him. Three times here, it talks about uh, Philip continuing to travel, going where the Lord wanted him. Verse 26, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And Luke puts in the 
the uh, editorial comment here in scriptures, a desert place. You think, Philip, man, if he started out in the, uh, the, in the, in the clubs and moved up to the uh, arenas, he's ready for the stadiums now. You think that's just what you do, man. You get your ministry. You sell your books. You go to your conferences. You, you, you talk about God, and people are in awe of the way that you can talk about the Lord. That's not the calling that Philip had, and that shouldn't necessarily be the calling, only if God wants it to be, and it better be clear. Uh, that's almost a worldly construct, this cult of personality that develops and how we even adapt it into the church. Philip went from the big crowds and, and the signs and wonders to the desert place because God told him to. Why the desert place? How are we going to grow the church in the desert? Shouldn't we go where the people are? Or should we go where God wants us to go? Verse 29, he's in that desert place and he's instructed, go over to this chariot. Go over here. And he goes alongside that chariot. Does the work that we're going to talk about in a little bit. And at the very end of the passage, after it's all done, and that eunuch has come to the Lord and is on his way, the Spirit carries Philip to a different place. It says, the Spirit of the Lord carried him away in verse 39, and Philip found himself at Azotus. But along the way, in verse 40, as he passed through those towns, he preached the gospel. He was always doing what a Christian is supposed to be doing. Would Paul say to Timothy, preach the word, be instant in season and out of season. Uh, when there's accolades, when there's not. Sometimes Paul reminds me of, uh, of what a pastor used to try to tell me, a pastor who tried to train me. He would say, don't believe your good press, don't believe your bad press, press on. <laughs> don't get too, uh, man, things change. You've got a job to do. You're on your way to heaven. You've got a calling to do, and you do that. We do see him one more time in Acts. And I'll read it now. We won't necessarily cover it. It's going to be a while till we get there. But in Acts 21, 7 through 9, Luke takes over and he's writing this story in the first person. And some people don't know this. I remember I enjoyed this. What happened to Philip? Whatever became of him? He just went and that was it? Acts 21, 7 through 9, Luke writes, When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemas, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And so you think even at this time, if you do the math, uh, Philip was a dad even at this point. His family was displaced, and, and they were all trekking along. And here's these four daughters who were speaking of the Lord also practical application from this first point. Your calling is obviously different than that of Philip's. It's not the exact same. You live in a different time, for instance. But there are similarities in Philip's story of his calling and for us to glean from in our calling. The first one is, God is the same. His love for us is the same. 
in the same way that God used circumstances to direct Philip as God did what God was going to do on the earth. God uses circumstances in our lives. He shuffles us around. Things happen, some good, some bad, and things change. And sometimes we can look back at stages of our life. When we hit a certain stage, we go, boy, that was another country. That was a different lifetime. Uh, I had to divide my life into three parts or so. And it was all different. But it was God who did the shuffling and the shifting around when I look back. Third comparison and third practical application for us. Cancel culture continues to be alive and well. We treat it like it's something brand new. No, it's always been around. That the mob, the world, does not like the gospel. The world is all saying one thing. And you as a Christian with your solid beliefs, your rock-solid things that you're not going to change along with the wind, are a fly in the ointment, a burr in the saddle, a pebble in the shoe, an annoyance, and there's always a threat to you. You're going to be annoying if you speak the truth of the gospel to people who are enemies of God. And who are the enemies of God? Everybody who's not the friend of God. The alligator may eat you last, but it wants to eat you. Philip dealt with that. We deal with that. And God is not unaware of this. You might even say he is the cause of this without sinning. God is the cause of of the unsettling. Throw your shoulders back, hold your head up and laugh. God's in control. Do the work. Don't take yourself seriously, but take God seriously. And you can enjoy every good and perfect gift he sends down along the way. Up in heaven there are Samaritans praising God, who are so glad Stephen got killed on that day, who are so glad that that ignited the the mob who wanted to get the rest of them, that that chased Philip out, that he came to that town, that he shared the gospel, and they came to know the Lord, and they've been in heaven for 2,000 years, all because Stephen was killed. They're like, hey, Stephen, sorry you had to go through that down there. And Stephen's like, I've been up here for so long, I can't even remember it anyway, hardly. Um, glad it happened. We don't have to say, woe is me. We can say, whatever God brings is brought by God. God is sovereign. We can trust him. And our job description is the same. It's the same. What's Philip's job description? What's ours? Listen to God. Well, he had angels appearing to him. He had an angel that apparently picked him up and transported him. You have your Bible. That's free. You say, it's not free. It costs a little money out the bookstore or online. Oh, it's free because I'm going to give you a Bible if you don't want. Take one of these, whatever. The Bible's free and reading the Bible is free. In our country, at least, you can read it. And there's no time limit. You don't have to log it in with any government that you have it. Uh, Other places, boy, they smuggle them in by pages. They do what they can. You see mimeograph machines where they've done what they could do. Uh, It's free. And God does speak to you through his word and as you pray. 
So listen to God. That's your job description. Do what is godly. Part of being godly, not all of being godly, part of being godly is verbalizing the gospel. If you're preaching it to yourself every day, if I'm doing that, if I'm rehearsing it, then it's easier for me in a circumstance to express that to somebody else if I'm I'm thinking about it and living it. Part of being godly is to verbalize the gospel. Even fellow Christians need to hear it from fellow Christians. Boy, we need to be reminded of that from each other. You can do this as part of the local church where God has placed you. There are other times in your life where you're just out there planting seeds of the gospel. And in all of it, it is God who does the work. God does the heavy lifting, but boy, he lets us put our little hands on that wheelbarrow and take that, doesn't he? Thank God. Next, see the work of God in the life of the eunuch. God does the heavy lifting in regards to everything that makes us, us. The eunuch's background. He was from Africa. You go, hey, I, I can win the geography B. I can go to, I can point out Ethiopia on the map. Well, this is a different Ethiopia is what they're all saying. <laughs> and that's a word that's come down and different countries change names and all that stuff. Uh, and they, uh, all, the, all of the uh, commentators and all that, unless they're all just echo chambering and copying each other, they're all saying it's, it's not necessarily the Ethiopia you know, but it is an Ethiopia that was down and away south. And they were pretty strong, this group where he came from. Strong enough that when Rome was taking over the world, uh, whatever Caesar was in charge, whatever Roman... Uh, said, you know what, let's not expend all our energy and all of our, our slaves and all of our men trying to fight these guys. Let's just cut a deal with them. And they were, they were allowed to cut a deal. And this guy was, uh, he was a eunuch, castrated, most likely. Some of them make the point that not every single time you hear of a, of a eunuch does it mean that. But for the most part, in Scripture, it does. And he was, in the, he was in the court of the queen. Just a little, this is not like spiritual, but uh, Candace, which is a name I love. I love, I love that name, Candace. Uh, that wasn't the name of the queen. That was actually like a title of the queen. And there were several Candaces there. So I don't know if, if, as we've started, I don't know if we started naming our people Candace every now and then. You hear of a few Candaces out there. Um, if that's from this, but if it's from this, it's not really the name. But uh, it's, it's an office, and they found in history uh, that he was high-ranking. He was the chancellor of the exchequer, according to all the British commentators. He was the head of the Department of Treasury to all the American commentators. He was in charge of the money of this powerful kingdom. He was intelligent. He was high-ranking. Something obviously missing in the culture that he came out of because he had come up, the Bible says he was a, he had come to to Jerusalem to worship, Uh, meaning he was Jewish, maybe Jewish by conversion, maybe Jewish by uh, an ancestor or something, but he was understanding of 
the Hebrew God, and he was interested in the Hebrew God to be able to come and worship. Remember on the day of Pentecost, when all the people had come in from all around, they were Jewish people, but they were from other countries. And when the Holy Spirit uh, came to the Christians, they were prophesying and they were speaking to them in their own tongues, their own native tongues. And he would have been one of these people that came from the outside to worship the Hebrew God. One reason they say he was not an out-and-out Gentile is because you have three instances in Acts of the Holy Spirit falling on people. First, the Jews at Pentecost. Then, two weeks ago, we looked at the Samaritans where they laid hands and gave them the Holy Spirit, and we're going to come up to Cornelius with the out-and-out Gentiles. And he wasn't in those categories. So, can't really say he was the first Gentile convert, but you can say he's a black man from Africa who's a head of the uh, department. He looked different. He was not from the same uh, cultural uh, sphere. Forget what all the current words. I don't even want to try and use the words because they change anyway. And use one that was in season last month. Now you said this meant it's wrong. But he was not. Uh, he was not in the same demographic at all as Philip. And Philip didn't care because God doesn't care. God doesn't care about that. He cares. He cares in a good way because he made us all different as a mosaic of people that worship him. And in the Revelation, it talks about every tongue, tribe, and language, and people, and men and women coming to him. All of us coming from different, even sin backgrounds, and different intellectual backgrounds, different everything. So he cares to that degree. But there's no discrimination with God. And you don't see it here with Philip either. Run up alongside the chariot. Uh, they said, and this was interesting to me, people read out loud those days. Uh, there wasn't a, you don't hear a lot about silent reading. They would read, they would read out loud. And he was reading out loud. And he happened to have Isaiah. He had a scroll. He had Isaiah. Uh, that would have been a valuable commodity. And God even orchestrated it for him to be there at that point, reading that passage to ask that question. Think about God doing the heavy lifting, God bringing the circumstances about to bring this man to Christ. And one thing I like about this man, this Ethiopian, he was humble enough to ask for help and understanding. You know what you're reading? How can I unless somebody helps me, he said. God directed the circumstances. Now, in Christianese, we call that a divine appointment. That's a good phrase. Think about every divine appointment you've had. Think of Jesus and the woman at the well. I must go through Samaria. Why? Well, he had an appointment with that woman. She was going to come by herself. He had an appointment with her. She just didn't know it, and the disciples didn't know it. And God placed the eunuch and Philip together the right place and the right time for God to be glorified in the life of the eunuch and of the church. Now here's another interesting thing, then we'll get back to the sermon part, but this is, this is something in the scripture I had not even, I guess I read it because I had to read it, and I read through the Bible on a semi-frequent basis. I never put these two together. There's another Ethiopian eunuch in Jeremiah. And God made that a divine appointment. 
And that Ethiopian eunuch saved Jeremiah's life. That's in Jeremiah 38, 7 and 8. When Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern, he went from the king's house and said to the king, My lord, the king, these men have done evil in all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern, and he will die there of hunger, for there is no bread left in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian eunuch, take three men and lift him out of there, lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So God, God's got no problem with Ethiopian eunuchs. Practically for us, practically for us, as we get ready for the next point, which is our, our gospel conclusion, but practically on this point, understand whenever you feel like or you say, you know, I think my whole life's been leading to this. It has been. It has been. That's true. When you feel that, you feel like everything's been leading to this time, it has been. In your conversation, things converge, things from the past, for you to hear and receive the gospel. C.S. Lewis in his life, conversations with a professor when C.S. Lewis was an atheist. The professor, I think they, what they call him, the old knock or something like that, and he'd have all these dialogues and everything. When it came time for Lewis to be converted, for God to convert him, Lewis describes his conversion as this, the moment. He said, I got in my brother Arnie's sidecar of his motorcycle to go to the zoo. I got in, I wasn't a Christian, I got out, and something happened, I was a Christian. But what had led to this were all these thoughts, all these studies, his uh, studies of the Nordic uh, mythology and him seeing uh, true myth then in the Bible, uh, the conversations, and God led all of that together. It all converged. I knew a man one time in a church when I was in, in this church and I had a men's ministry. Man came and he was going through, uh, I can't say it's the most terrible marriage, Divorce, fight, they would have to be tied for it. <laughs> Bad. And last ditch, he came to the men's group. His wife tried church a little bit and left him. He was converted. And he loved the Lord. And it was painful as they tried to wrestle over the residue of a marriage with children in it and everything. And he said to me one time, he said, I think this is going to sound bad. Tell me if this sounds bad. He's trying to put the theology of all this together. And he said, I'm glad all of that happened with her because I'm a Christian now and I wouldn't have been if we'd had just a smooth sailing marriage. He said, is that theologically right? <laughs> and I said, you know, I... Can't, I'm like you. I shudder to say it's a good thing it happened. It's bad whenever it happens. I can say I don't know. I can say God was present in all of it. We can both say it's above our pay grade. But be glad that God saved you. And think about all the times that have happened in your life of conflict and harshness where you had nowhere to go. 
say in the end, God does the heavy lifting. God's behind it all. So don't despise who you are. Don't be proud of who you are in yourself. You are who you are. Genetics, circumstances, all of it. And it's all been leading to you acknowledging Christ, submitting to him, living for him, confessing your sins, and then stepping out in this world as a daughter or son of the Lord to fulfill your job description all the way to heaven when you get to continue to fill your job description of worshiping the King of kings and Lord of lords. And after water baptism, he went on his way rejoicing. And he remained an Ethiopian eunuch in charge of the treasury in the court of Candace, queen of Ethiopia, with one difference. This time he was the Christian Ethiopian eunuch in charge of the treasury in the court of Candace, queen of Ethiopia. And his life changed. And imagine when they met up in heaven, along with Stephen, along with those Samaritans, and think of what it's like, and think of what we have down here, and how we will be together in heaven. As God brings us across, using some of us to reach others for the Lord. I said this one a time or two, but I just, this is my family so profoundly affected in Iowa with grandparents who were normal, you know, nominal type Christians, believers, went to their church. It was a mainline denomination, and they heard the gospel. Because some of those aunts and great aunts and uncles of mine are our great-great-aunts and uncles of mine are believers from that. But my grandpa wasn't. He was just a farmer out in western Iowa. And he said, well, Dave, I kind of thought if I died in the pool hall on a Saturday night, I'd go to hell. And if I died in church on Sunday morning, I'd go to heaven. He said, that was my theology. He's just a good old hard-working guy. And that young Omaha Baptist Bible College student, Louis Miller, came out there trying to raise money and work on farms and hiring himself out, and it was a divine appointment. However, he knocked on Grandpa's door, and maybe Grandpa just said to Grandma, boy, i got to string all this fence out here, and i got to detassel this corn, i got to fix these, and, and boy, how am I going to do it all? And maybe that's how it was. But Louis Miller came as a Christian into my Grandpa's life, who was a non-Christian. And finally, Grandpa goes, after a week or so of Louis living with them and eating at their table and working and Grandpa seeing the quality of his work and his cheerfulness and something about him that was different. And Grandpa said, what's different? And Louis followed that divine appointment. He was like Philip. And he shared the gospel. And Grandpa got on his knees in the barn and got saved. And his punchline, whenever I'd hear him tell this story of his testimony, he'd say, well, I got saved in a barn, but I still think he should go to church. And all the old farmers yucking it up and laughing at that. And uh, me being proud of Grandpa, but thinking about how much it affected my life that Louis Miller came along. These guys both went on their way joyful, and God was glorified. So we talk about heavy lifting, we talk about us being part of what God's doing. 
Um, theologically, we know God does all of it. If we sat back and, and just said, okay, God, do it, that'd make us hyper-Calvinists, and that's not a biblical, it's fatalism. That's not, that's not what the Bible tells us. We work. We do God's work. But there is the last point that we get to. And there, if I said God does the heavy lifting, but he lets you help, uh, then it's time for you to find another church or another pastor. And that's in this passage in Isaiah that was being read. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Jesus didn't say to any person, hey, come on up on the cross with me. I'll do most of it, and I'll bear the brunt of the pain, and if I can kind of move over when they're sticking the sword up there, and you don't have to have the sword, but just come up on the cross with me and help me save these people. Uh, that's not where Jesus does the heavy lifting. Jesus does the only lifting. There is nothing we could do to save ourselves. And Philip looked at Scripture, and he started with that passage, but he went all the way through, even to the separation part of baptism, and even to the 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 he taught him all that much. It must have been a long chariot ride or else they stopped the chariot because he taught him these things. And that's the thing that Jesus does alone. He was a sheep led to the slaughter. Came to this earth fully God, fully man. All these people are running out to the wilderness so John the Baptist could baptize them. The baptism was not a baptism as we know it. It wasn't a Christian baptism, but it was a symbolic washing away, saying, I need to be purified. I'm guilty and I'm wrong. Jesus submitted to that baptism, as, not as a sinner, but as one who would represent the sinners. And he was baptized there. But as he came, John the Baptist said about him, not about anybody else, but about him, about Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Lamb of God. He's the one who takes away the sins of the world. We're told he could have called 10,000 angels. Boy, the mocking and the taunting. Finally, you just, uh, any of us, after a while, seeing our mom there, uh, what we're going through, the agony, if we can bring a relief. Some of us would lash out in anger, some in revenge, some just for relief. And Jesus stayed on the cross out of love for us because he knew he was the only one who could do this for his people who he came to save. For you, if you're a Christian, he loves you. You are loved by God. You are called by God. You were saved by God. And you even get to do God's work. He even loves you so much, he lets you put your hands on the wheelbarrow and, and take joy as he does his work and lets you be involved in it. You have a privileged position if you're a Christian. And then we get to die and go to heaven, too. We've got it made. We can cheer up in this weary land that we sang about. Go with joy. Receive the table with joy. Love the fact that you've been called by God. Ask him, 
Maybe you get to be present. Maybe he's got some great things for you. Maybe you get to be uh, this version of Louis Miller or this version of whoever it is that, that, uh, that, that, that he uses and you even get to see, be there and see when he saves people. Maybe this church is a place he's going to use as things get worse and worse and tougher and tougher on Christians. And maybe as people get so fed up with all this junk that's out there that they've been trying to satisfy. And, and I know it's junk that they've been, because it's junk that I still try. <laughs> Sometimes I forget. And I'm thinking I'm going to find my joy in that. And it's not that. Who knows what we get to see? Who knows what God's getting ready to do? Boy, that persecution in, in Jerusalem led to some mighty, mighty, great, godly things. Who knows what God's going to do? And we take our comfort and our joy in that, and no matter what happens, our job description is the same as Christians, and we get to do that. So let's pray. Let's go to the table. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege of being your daughters and your sons. Thank you that you saved us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Thank you for the ways you've led us in the past, and we've known it's you. Thank you for your word where you speak to us. Thank you for listening to our prayers. Thank you for this church, and thank you for each other. Thank you for the mission that you have called us to as we make disciples, as we enjoy you and and love you, and, and as we anticipate heaven. And then we thank you for heaven where we get to go when this job is done here. Thank you for the joy you bring us in this journey. In Jesus' name, amen.